0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Olorunipo with The Washington Post. Hi, this is
2: Amy Britton calling in The Post.
1: This is Peter Jamison from The Washington Post.
0: This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, March 25th. Today, the cruise industry's missed opportunity, campaigning in the age of coronavirus, and how Japan is flattening the curve. think back to the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak, I feel like, at least for me, what made me start to take it more seriously or realize that this was a more widespread problem extending out past China was what happened to the Diamond Princess, the the cruise ship.
2: Hi, everyone. Still on board Diamond Princess. In 39
3: way. more people aboard that quarantine cruise ship docked in Yokohama, Japan. It's
0: one of the last scenarios one imagines when
3: booking a cruise vacation. Get used to hearing COVID-19. This was a ship that left out of the Tokyo area and found itself moored off the coast of Japan for weeks on end, hundreds tested positive. And this, in the public consciousness, sort of became like the most nightmarish situation people could imagine, being on a cruise ship, unable to get off, sick, or wondering if they were sick. And that was playing out through most of February. I'm Beth Reinhardt. I'm an investigative reporter at the Washington Post. But then it wasn't just
2: that cruise ship. The Grand Princess cruise ship has been moored off the coast of California since Wednesday night.
0: There was another one, the Grand Princess, which also had a similar scenario where you had a bunch of people, some of whom were sick, some of whom were very afraid of getting sick, being stuck on this cruise ship that was essentially quarantined and not allowed to dock and not allowed to let passengers off.
2: 21 individuals on the Grand Princess tested positive.
0: And I feel like my first question here is, why does it seem like every cruise ship that has the name Princess in it is affected with coronavirus?
3: Well, Carnival, which is the largest cruise operator, owns Princess Cruises, and Princess Cruises operates both the Diamond Princess and the Grand Princess that you mentioned. The Grand Princess left out of San Francisco in late February, so just as folks were being evacuated from the Diamond Princess, some people I talked to, why did you get on the Grand Princess? You saw this was happening in, you know, in Japan on the other side of the Pacific Ocean. And they said, oh, well, we just thought it was happening over there.
4: We just thought because that was Asia, we, we, we didn't dream of it being in America. We hadn't heard of it being in America at all up until that point.
3: One of the people I talked to was Howard Lewis. He was on the boat with his wife celebrating her 65th birthday.
4: Indeed. A couple of people we got very friendly with were actually only on that ship because their Asian cruises had been cancelled because of the fear of coronavirus
3: people really thought it was an isolated problem on that one cruise ship. But what I don't understand is that it's not
0: like the cruise ship companies weren't aware that there was this outbreak and that there was a real risk to having a bunch of people together in close quarters on a cruise ship. So how is it that this scenario could play out over and over and over again without anyone doing anything to stop it and just saying, look, we can't have people on these cruise ships?
3: So... In early March, that is when health officials in the administration started urging the president to just shut the cruise ships down. But the president said repeatedly that he didn't want to do that. He wanted to help the cruise ships. He wanted to Spare them from financial losses, and there was obviously some pushback from the cruises that want to stay afloat, keep going. They came up with some protocols in which they said they would improve the way they screen passengers, they would be stricter with quarantines if they should need them, and they you know submitted that they met with the vice president, a bunch of cruise executives did in Fort Lauderdale. And so they stayed open. They kept sailing and did not shut down until March 13th. And by then, as we've reported, there were many, many ships already out on the seas with potentially sick people aboard. In fact, the CDC today in report says by March 17th, which would have been after both the Diamond Princess and the Grand Princess had docked. There were 25 ships with confirmed cases of coronavirus associated with them. So when it comes to
0: the Grand Princess, which was the second Princess cruise line ship that was seeing an outbreak on board, what was the timeline for the infection spreading?
3: So that cruise ship left San Francisco on February 21st.
4: The 21st of February, we joined the Grand Princess. We didn't think anything was amiss we signed a form to say we hadn't been to china in the previous two weeks there was nothing unusual we weren't temperature tested or anything
3: on that same day a passenger who had been on this previous voyage that went to mexico got off the ship he's known to have respiratory problems but that's all that is known about him at this point There are also about 62 passengers who stayed on that ship, okay? So these are folks who may have interacted with that guy who got off, along with more than a 1,000 crew members who may have interacted with that guy. So they set sail February 21.
4: And everything was great. We had a fantastic cruise. Uh, We did some great things in Hawaii. We loved Hawaii.
3: But meanwhile, this guy who had gotten off the ship tested positive on March 3rd. So on the morning of March 4th, the passengers got an advisory. In some cases, it was like slipped under their doors or emailed. And it said the CDC is investigating some cases. If you were on the previous cruise, you should stay in your room. And we're skipping a scheduled stop in Mexico. So basically putting people on alert, but definitely not quarantining them. So that's March 4th. March 4th, they're still eating, going out, mingling at the bar. The next day, March 5th, Coast Guard helicopter is dropping off tests. People are milling about the ship, filming that and putting it on social media. Here I am on the Princess cruise ship, Thursday, March 5th. Not until that afternoon are people strictly quarantined in their in their cabins
4: and really that's where the bit of the nightmare started because we were inside cabin and with no daylight or sunlight or fresh air
3: passengers told us that the quarantine was pretty strict
4: we were stuck in the cabin there they brought food to us three times a day they would leave the food outside on the carpet Uh, knock the door, and we would go out and they'd be gone.
3: The crew member who had delivered the food was long gone, run away, no contact with the crew.
4: Nobody ever came in our cabin.
3: They did get to walk around, like, for an hour once.
4: As long as we stayed at least two meters or so from the other people who were out as well.
3: Two things happened to the passengers during that quarantine period that made them really unhappy. So they're sitting in their cabins, they can't leave, they're watching TV, and they see... Vice President Mike Pence having a press conference in which he announces
2: uh, 46 persons were swabbed. Uh, 21 uh, of those on the ship tested positive for the coronavirus.
3: They learned this at the same time you and I would have learned it watching television. So, this is, of course, very upsetting news. That same day, the other development that really upset passengers was I'd rather have them stay off, personally president trump saying you know
2: i would rather because i like the numbers being where they are i don't need to have the numbers double because of one ship that wasn't our fault
3: and that didn't
0: go over very well and it was also unclear in that moment like what exactly president trump was suggesting that they do with these passengers like just leave them on the ship forever
3: i think they were asking the same thing
0: and so then What ultimately happened with the Grand Princess and with the passengers on board?
1: At 6 a.m. this morning, the federal government announced its decision to conduct the disembarkation operation for the Grand Princess at the port of Oakland.
4: We got off the ship. We had our temperature taken. We had armbands put on where our temperature was written on.
3: The Americans were sent to military bases. The international people went home. Howard Lewis was from Wales, he went home, he and his wife.
4: We were then boarded onto what I can only describe as a cargo plane because there was nothing at all in it other than our seats, a container which was apparently was a biohazard container which had previously been used for Ebola victims.
3: And didn't find out till a few days later that they had tested positive.
4: And to be perfectly honest, with you, we, never, we were amazed that it came back positive on the Saturday evening. Because we've had no symptoms to speak about.
3: So I just got some updated numbers. The CDC announced that, you no know, remember, there's 3,500 roughly people on this on the ship, right? As of March 21st, out of 469 tests among those Americans who were quarantined at the military bases, 78 people have tested positive. So that's a total of about 100 people as of about now that we know who are on that ship that were positive. So
0: what have health experts said about how the Grand Princess incident was handled?
3: One expert we talked to said that once that positive test had come back on March 3rd, that there should have been immediately quarantine measures or at least social distancing put into effect. And we know that didn't happen immediately. It happened in stages over the next couple days. and. You know, over those couple of days, it's possible that people who didn't know they were infected infected people, other people knowing what we know about how quickly this virus can jump around.
0: And have there been criticisms of the cruise industry previous to the coronavirus outbreak about either its lax safety standards or the way that it's treated by the federal government and kind of given the ability to do what it wants in a lot of cases?
3: Yes. Major cruise lines are registered overseas, and that means that they largely don't pay federal income taxes and Uh, do not have to follow U.S. labor regulations. They don't have to pay minimum wage, for example. And so they are sort of out from under the purview of of the U.S. government in many cases. And that lack of oversight is something that is talked about every time there is a problem on a ship where people get sick or someone falls overboard, the Coast Guard, which is, of course, a taxpayer-funded agency, has to come to the rescue. And there's a lot of debate about whether that is a fair system.
0: And what we saw with the Diamond Princess and the Grand Princess are those issues that other cruise lines have had to deal with, other cruise companies?
3: We've been hearing reports about a number of other cruise nightmares out there people sick, aboard, they can't find a place to dock because that country has closed their ports. So, this is still an ongoing problem. There's a number of, you uh, can call them ghost ships out there looking for places to dock, trying to find places where people can disembark. And I think it'll be a little while till all of those passengers are are safely home. And do you think
0: that the stories about these ships during the coronavirus outbreak say something bigger about the cruise industry in general or how it deals with public health risks?
3: This is obviously a devastating blow for the cruise industry. They may be getting some financial assistance from Congress along with other hospitality businesses like hotels and restaurants but i do think people are going to be wary about cruising in the future and so this is going to probably require a major public relations campaign as well as some reforms on their part to be able to convince people that that it's safe and sanitary
0: beth reinhart is an investigative reporter for the post
1: If the primary was still going full bore, former Vice President Biden would be traveling around the country, as would Bernie Sanders. They'd be holding rallies. They'd be working rope lines. Their surrogates would be out there doing interviews around the country. And in a number of states that are coming up, they would have field organizations working the streets, knocking on doors, talking to people and saying, vote for my guy. I'm Michael Shearer. I'm a national political reporter with The Washington Post. And what are
0: we seeing instead?
1: Instead, we're seeing...
0: As he joins us now live from
2: Delaware, please welcome back former Vice President Joe Biden. Good morning. Hey, Thank you how having you?
1: Former Vice President Joe Biden is scrambling to build himself a television studio in the basement of his Delaware home.
2: They've set up a little bit of a studio here in my home. I'm able to speak to you and doing a lot of uh, remote stuff for uh, with the media
1: and everybody who walks into his house is wearing gloves and masks to help set up that equipment. —
2: Um, all right, let me, uh... —
1: Senator Bernie Sanders has been in Washington, where he's been involved in the negotiations over a stimulus bill. —
2: Right now, uh, we're going to have to, for technical reasons here, uh, we're going to go to some music. —
1: But similarly, his campaign is basically limited at this point to video conferencing and and holding events online. —
2: And after we hear the music from NACO, We're going to be having a discussion with Sarah Nelson.
1: Nothing is being done in person. Both the campaign's headquarters and staffs are dispersed to their homes for the most part, and they're operating remotely.
0: So this is a pretty radical upending of what a campaign would look like or should look like.
1: Absolutely. And and it's not just the primary campaign that is being upended. It's the general election campaign as well. It was widely expected that President Trump and his campaign, which is very well staffed and well funded, would be launching at this moment a pretty big anti-Joe Biden blitz. As soon as it was clear that Biden might be wrapping up the nomination, we would have seen a doubling or tripling of what we've been hearing about Biden from the Trump operation for a number of months now. And instead, they've effectively been forced to pull any paid operation against Biden because of the the viral outbreak and and sort of play a, a media game of sniping from the sidelines with him, which is a huge relief for Democrats and a huge relief for Biden, who at this point really has almost no money in the bank.
0: So going back to this TV studio that Joe Biden is setting up in his house like, what does that actually look like? And what is he doing with this TV studio?
1: So he's built it in his what he calls his rec room. I haven't been to his house. So I don't know exactly the layout, but I think it's in the first floor in the basement. There's a bunch of bookshelves in the back. I think people are going to become very familiar with the setting because he went on The View to talk with the ladies of The View about what he thinks about the viral response.
2: What is the number sure. one thing you're most concerned about and what do you want to tell the, the American people? Number one thing I'm most concerned about, Whoopi, is misinformation.
1: Mm-hmm. Listen, And he's been to- doing fundraising calls from here. He's trying to put together video conferencing capabilities to do basically virtual press conferences.
3: You can't hold events or do big rallies. You can't shake people's hands. How worried are you about losing those personal connections in
1: this new world? Um,
2: you know me, I I, I I like to see people look them in the eye, answer their questions directly. But with the new technology available, I think I'll be able to reach and make my points across the board.
1: Another thing his campaign has talked about is trying to come up with a way to do a virtual rope line where he could interact briefly one-on-one with voters, as he would if he was at an event working the rope line, sort of individual FaceTimes that would then go one to the other and, and then to the next. It's not clear they have that technology. They've sort of been struggling on that end, but he's spending a lot of time in his basement. And what's interesting is a lot of his top aides are not with him. Normally, at this point in a campaign, the candidate would be having regular meetings with his kitchen cabinet, and in the kitchen, in the case of Biden, I mean, Biden famously like to meet at his house with his campaign advisors, But for the most part, they're spread in Philadelphia, in Washington, D.C., and, and other places.
0: And as far as the live streams have been going, I mean, they, they just started, but how do they feel when you watch them? Like, how effective is it?
1: There have been a lot of technological glitches so far. All ready to go? Set it up. I'm going. Good morning. I
2: hope you and your family are doing well in these difficult and anxious times, confusing
1: times. It's not clear, for instance, when the video ends, and you'll see him sort of struggle to to maintain what he's doing. At other times, you know, he had a problem with the teleprompter as he was reading a speech. Beef up the number of responders dealing with the crush,
2: these crush of cases. And uh, and in addition to that, uh, in addition to that, we have to uh, make sure that we. Uh, we are in a position that we are. Well, let me let me go to the second thing. I've spoken up of that. The president must use. They the look
1: sort of amateurish. App. Is is the answer? And and the Biden campaign has been trying to get in proper lighting to make it look more like a real television studio. And you need directing. I mean, the, the truth is that campaigns generally depend on either their own advertising teams or on networks to produce video for them. They go and do an interview on the view and they get makeup from the view and they get lighting from the view. They don't have to do it from their basement. And so there's sort of a greater onus on on the vice president. And it's fair to say that he has struggled over the last week, but that he has time to sort of build this out. It's clearly going to be this way for some time.
0: But it also feels like this is a particularly formidable challenge for a candidate like Biden, for whom one of his biggest challenges is to not come off as old, you know, like a lot of people think that he's like too old to run for president. And that one thing that makes people look old is them struggling with technology. And he's not a candidate who does particularly well on debate stages or in big public spaces anyways, that he really thrives in like one-on-one interpersonal interactions. And so it just feels like the type of campaigning that he's having to turn to now does not necessarily play to his strengths.
1: I think that's fair to say. I think it's fair to say that he hasn't performed very well all through the election cycle, even when it was in-person campaigning. But it's also true that his connection with voters has remained. I mean, he's remained pretty popular in national polls. He was able to basically uh, consolidate most of the Democratic Party behind him at this point. I think the another way of saying that challenge is he sees himself now competing with President Trump. And President Trump has the White House. He gets to go to the briefing room for a couple hours a day and be on television all across the nation. He has a huge megaphone. And the contrast that the Biden campaign wants is one of leadership. And they want to they showcase Biden as the kind of President Americans want. And I think there is the struggle. I mean, there's clearly ways to critique what Donald Trump has done over the last several weeks in responding to the virus. But it's also true that Donald Trump is pretty good at producing events for himself at the White House, and and I think that mismatch is also an issue. For the Trump campaign, what they really are embracing now is this idea that Trump is a unifying wartime president at this moment, and, and that that is a broadening of what has been a re- relatively narrow base for the president. And and they're hoping to embrace that idea that Trump is actually moving beyond his political core as he responds to the threat of the coronavirus.
0: So. When are we going to see these campaigns return to normal or will that ever happen? Like, is there a world in which this is what campaigning looks like straight through till November, especially considering the fact that both Biden and Trump and Bernie Sanders, for that matter, are all people who are very vulnerable to this outbreak?
1: The answer to that question is the campaign will return to normal uh, shortly after the rest of the country begins to return to normal, and no one knows exactly when that's going to happen. I mean, it's even a question right now whether the, the party conventions, which are scheduled for July and August, will go forward as planned. Those are events that bring thousands of people from around the country into one room for four days, which at least at this moment doesn't look like a great idea. Many of those people are relatively old as well. So it could be that for the next five, six months, we're facing this sort of a campaign environment. You know, it's also totally possible at this moment that the act of voting in November will still be disrupted by this. There's you know, efforts by states to move more to vote by mail systems right now because they don't really want the typical long lines that you have in big general election campaigns and 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 you know this is certainly going to be a relatively high turnout election in November if if it can be and and so you know state officials are concerned about that nothing like this has ever happened in politics before campaigns adjust to events on the ground you've had hurricanes in the final weeks before a general election campaign you've had national security events you know conflicts overseas that have interrupted campaigns but You know, at least since the early 1900s, you have not had a viral outbreak this disruptive in an election year. And it's really up in the air. I mean, this could be mostly resolved. We could have, you know, treatments and and new uh, practices in place by the fall that allow people to go about their daily business, or we still could be living like we are now.
0: Michael Scheer is a national political reporter for The Post. Now, one more thing. When you look at the spread of coronavirus around the world, many countries have seen a sudden, sharp growth in confirmed cases, like what we've seen in Italy and in the US. But there's one country that has looked very different Japan, where the increase in cases is way more controlled.
5: So, Japan's slow but steady rise in coronavirus infections is one of the mysteries of what's happening in Asia at the moment. And we don't really know, nobody really knows what's causing this.
0: Simon Denier is our Tokyo bureau chief.
5: There are a number of different theories. It could be that Japanese people are just better at social distancing. For example, you know, most people wear masks. People don't tend to shake hands. They tend to bow, and certainly we'll be doing more of that.
0: But the other likely explanation is the way that the Japanese government has been handling testing.
5: Japanese government came in for a lot of criticism early on for not testing people. Tests were not widely available. It was like the United States, actually. People weren't happy, doctors weren't happy, that they weren't able to refer people for tests. But you talk to people now... And quite a few Japanese experts are actually happy and supportive of Japan's strategy. Hello? Hello, Dr. Iwata. I spoke to Kentaro Iwata. He's a professor from Kobe University. Now, he believes that rationing testing does make some sense. People were instructed not to come to the hospital while you have a very mild symptom, and that has been very successful. If you turn up at a health centre and you go into a crowded waiting room, the chance of the infection being passed around people in that crowded waiting room is actually quite high. So if your symptoms are mild, what the Japanese are saying, it's better to stay home and just monitor your symptoms and only come for a test and treatment if you're more severely ill. This is clearly a controversial view. Not everybody buys into this Way of doing it. The WHO said test, test, test. The relative lack of testing does mean that Japan is probably understating its numbers, almost certainly understating the numbers of infected people. But there isn't any indication that there's a massive hidden coronavirus surge here. There's no long lines at hospitals, there's no massive of deaths which are unexplained. So the situation may be worse than it's being portrayed, but it may not be a massive crisis yet. But certainly, Japan may be understating the number of coronavirus cases. And that could be a problem for a couple of reasons. Kentaro Iwata is worried.
0: I'm very concerned of complacency. People might begin to be overly optimistic About the uh, low level infection right now, Mm -hmm. and they
5: start to behave differently. That might trigger the overshoot of the cluster. He says that social distancing is breaking down in Japan. Last weekend, the sun was shining, and in Tokyo and around Tokyo, everybody was out. There were crowds viewing cherry blossoms. There were thousands of people north of Tokyo looking at the Olympic flame, which had just arrived from Greece, in a large crowd. So people have largely given up on social distancing. And one theory is that's because the lack of testing has lulled them into a false sense of security. Japan has one of the largest proportions of elderly people in the world. So there is real concern here that if the virus strikes the elderly population, if it gets into the elderly population, the death toll could rise quite dramatically. For now, Japan's approach does seem to be working, but we don't know if it will continue to work. And in Recent days, we are seeing a rise in infections. So there are worrying signs that Japan's encouraging performance might not last indefinitely.
0: Simon Denier is the Tokyo bureau chief for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. This is a great time to sign up for the Post newsletter on the coronavirus outbreak. You can stay updated on our latest reporting and learn how to keep yourself safe. Any article you click in the newsletter is free to access. To sign up, go to WashingtonPost.com slash virus newsletter. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.